This morning, uh, just a couple of days before our presidential election, I thought I'd want to bring to you a message that says, so what are we to do in this election? It seems like uh, no other time in our history if so many people ask so many questions about what should I do on, uh, on election day? Should I vote? Should I not vote? Who should I vote for? Uh, should I move to another country? Uh, I mean, there, there's all kind of uh, things that have been suggested. The first three words of our Constitution are we the people. We the people sets forth the fact that America is unique. It is unique in that it was created as an idea, an idea of self-governance. Before 1776, every nation was formed either as a group of ethnically similar people or different groups that were held together by a strong leader. In fact, all the great nations of Europe from where our founding fathers came from, have been ruled by monarchs. Today, we see democracy around the world in different places, and we just take this for granted. We need to be reminded that in 1776, there were no democracies. There were no self-governing people. And so the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution wanted to create a government in which the people who came from different backgrounds, could rule themselves. To do this, there had to be checks and balances, boundaries and guidelines, and you see this with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. America was called the grand experiment. Would it work? It had never been done like this before. So the question was, so how does a republic of self-governed people work? This has never been done before. How do you govern yourselves? How do you elect your own leaders? How does this work? What is the basis of it? An author and a social critic named Os Guinness studied this and came up with what he called the golden triangle of freedom. The golden triangle of freedom. And in the golden triangle of freedom, he reduced freedom to its most basic form and it's three-sided. And it is this. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. And faith requires freedom. These three go round and round and they support each other. If any of the sides of this triangle fall off to the side, then freedom falls and the ability to self-govern ourselves falls with it. The whole structure ceases. So these three are important. Let's just take a quick look at them. The first one is freedom requires virtue. We think about virtue. That means goodness, morality, integrity, and righteousness. In order for people to be self-governing, they need to have virtue, integrity, character, righteousness. John Adams who was a strong Christian, says the only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue. So one of the framers of the constitution, who's a strong Christian, says the only foundation is pure virtue. Well, then Ben Franklin, who you would not put him in as a a strong Christian, says almost the same thing. Only virtuous people are capable of freedom. Freedom requires virtue. But the second part of that was virtue requires faith. Virtue requires faith. Virtue 
integrity, and character are vital. And for these to exist, there has to be faith that is derived from some type of religious principles. Let me give you another quote from John Adams. John Adams says, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. What that means is if you don't have some type of, of, uh, of, of governor or so own our own passions with some type of morality, we'll just go all different ways. And he says here, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now look at that for just a moment. It says our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. That is a necessity. Adams understood that the secret to self-government is that the people must themselves be self-governing. They must be motivated by something beyond the law. And as followers of Christ, we are motivated by our faith in him and to live obediently for him. It is a higher standard and it translates into virtuous living. So look at this triangle. In the triangle it says, freedom requires virtue, integrity, righteousness. Where does that come from? It comes from faith. It comes from something bigger than yourself, something outside of yourself. And that faith requires freedom. And what you need to understand is that the founders, the founding fathers, those who shaped our constitution observed something entirely different in America, something that had successfully operated for nearly a century. You see, you remember the pilgrims came here about 1620. And then as the colonies began to be formed, they were living and pretty well, pretty well kind of governing themselves. And the founding fathers that put together the constitution realized that there was this tolerance of denominations and religions and people were not coerced to believe something, but they could believe and worship precisely as they wished. See, freedom without religion or moral guidelines would be like removing banks from a river and allowing it to overflow, causing mayhem and destruction. It would be like in the book of Judges where the people did what was right in their own eyes with no regard for God or others. But religion, faith without freedom would be tyranny. And this is why most of the people came to America. They didn't want that tyranny. He says, so you have to have all three of these. But as America loses its way morally, its character erodes and its ability to govern itself effectively dissipates. The founding fathers knew that the greatness of America would be determined by the goodness of its people. Two out of three sides of this triangle, two out of three sides, directly point to Christ's followers. We are people of faith, and our faith should result in virtuous living. Knowing this then, God's people should make their voice known. Now, this does not mean that freedom in the United States is only for Christians, not at all. What we're saying is that in order for our nation to continue to govern itself and to have the freedoms, it requires virtue and people of faith. And so that's us. That's our responsibility. We need to make our voices known. We have the great privilege of voting and of determining who our leaders will be. And as Christians, we need to take advantage of that privilege. Well, some of you will say, Danny, have you seen who's running for president? Yes, We have the two most flawed candidates in our nation's history. 
Donald Trump with his vitriolic and denigrating language. Hillary Clinton, whose entire political career is surrounded by corruption and scandal. And each day that passes, we get more dirt on Trump and more corruption from Hillary. So what are we to do? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to share with you. Number one, our responsibilities on November 8th. Our responsibilities on November 8th. Two things. Number one, vote no matter what. Vote no matter what. No matter what you think about the presidency, you need to go vote. Everything said by Jesus to his followers that is written in this God's word and everything written by Paul to the churches were written to people who were under a governmental rule where they had no voice and they had no vote. When Jesus was asked if they were to pay taxes to Caesar, he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what was God's. Do what is expected of you and is required of you by the government and do what is expected of you and is required of you by God. In Romans 13, Paul tells the believers in Rome to be subject to the governmental authorities, to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, and to pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. In a godless, repressive government, Paul reminds his leaders all authority is given by God and that they were to be subject to that authority. Do what is expected by a citizen of the government. So today, we live in a government that allows us to elect the leaders that we want to govern us. We have a voice unlike those in the New Testament. Both Jesus and Paul told the believers to do what is expected of the citizens. I believe that both of them would say to you, you have the right and responsibility as a citizen to vote. Let your voice be heard. And you do this to assure that the virtuous Christ following voice is heard in every election. See, in every election, there needs to be the voice of those who are Christ followers. There's got to be the virtue, the integrity, the morality, the character. Voice needs to be heard. And this one is no exception. What we need to understand is that on Tuesday, when you go to um, a voting booth, they give you a ballot. There's more than just two names on the ballot. It's just not presidents. There are many positions and amendments on the ballot. There are 14 statewide amendments that will affect our state. Your voice is needed. There's one Jefferson County amendment, I believe, and there's two Shelby County amendments. Your voice needs to be heard. And guess what? There are other races for Congress and there are judges that are on the ballot and your voice needs to be heard. Now, you may be disappointed in the presidential candidates, but there are some good men and women running for other offices that need your support and your vote. Don't punish them because of the names at the top of the ticket. The voices of Christ's followers need to be heard, and we need to elect people of character who we can trust and respect as they serve us in government. So I'm saying you need to vote no matter what. I do not believe sitting at home and sitting this one out is, is a choice. You need to vote. There are other offices, amendments, things that your voice needs to be heard. And it's your choice as to whether you want to vote for president or not. Ah, but that's my second point. Look at this one. Vote for president. Now, you say, well, how can you say that? It's because I've got the floor. That's how I can say that. So let me tell you. We think about when we vote for president. Okay. I'm going to go on a stretch and say, let's take the character issue and put it aside, okay? 
I don't think anybody's going to get in a spitting contest on character and win on this one. So what I want you to do is I want you to focus on two other things. Number one is this, party platform. Party platform. The Republican and Democratic platforms expound two vastly different visions of America. And you can go online uh, at, at our website under measures and you'll see where uh, that has been distilled in about 22 major areas to see the differences in the two platforms. And you get to read over that. It's two entirely different visions of America. Read the two platforms, make your decision. There are some great differences between the two parties and the two candidates. Abortion, religious freedom, education, immigration, health care, regulations on business, climate change, the environment, economy, and taxation. There are enough differences in the two platforms to drastically shape the direction of our country for the next 20 years. This is a huge election, and I don't use huge as a Donald Trump word. I'm just using it is a huge election. And if Donald was here and Hillary was here, they would both say it's a huge election. And it has long-term ramifications that will affect your children and your grandchildren. Read the platforms, pray, and then you vote for which one best represents your vision for America. There are two widely diverse visions for America. You should be able to lock into one of them, figure out which one, and vote that way. Second thing I want you to think about when you're voting for president is judicial and cabinet appointments. The next president will make at least one appointment to the Supreme Court and possibly three in the next four years. This will shape the direction of the Supreme Court and the course of our nation for at least a generation. It will shape the direction for at least a generation. This next president will be in control of shaping the highest court in the land as few presidents have ever been in control. You say, well, is that a big deal? Well, before Justice Scalia's death, the court was said to be five to four conservative. So let me just give you one case. Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores. Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores. David Green, the CEO of Hobby Lobby, did not believe that abortion, the taking of a new life in the mother's womb, was morally right, and it went against his biblical convictions. The government, with the new Obamacare, mandated that the Greens and their family businesses provide four specific potentially life-terminating drugs and devices through their employee health plan, which conflicted with their deeply held religious convictions. The bottom line, the government was forcing Hobby Lobby to go against their religious convictions and financially support the practice of abortion. It was a case about the broader issue of one's right to religious freedom in business. It carried five to four in Hobby Lobby's favor. Today, you have the right in your business to represent Christ. You were one vote away from the loss of your religious freedom in your business. One vote. This election will balance the court one way or another. Major cases dealing with religious freedom, what can be preached from the pulpit, late-term abortion, federal funding of abortions, LGBT issues ranging from hiring practices to bathroom usage to separate locker room facilities for boys and girls, and further redefinitions of marriage and family. All of these will be decided by the Supreme Court justices who will be selected by the next president. Franklin Graham says this, The future composition of the Supreme Court is the preeminent issue. 
since the new presidential appointees will wield tremendous influence over virtually every sector of American life. So what are you to do? Read the platforms, see the type of justices that the presidential candidate will choose, pray, and then vote for your vision for America. But beyond Supreme Court justices, and a lot of times we forget this, there'll also be the appointment of hundreds of new judges to federal district and circuit courts. And their ideology will alter the makeup of the lower courts and can do irreversible damage depending on your vision of America. Also, keep in mind cabinet appointments. It's amazing no one ever talks about this. You know, as soon as someone gets elected as president, they select their cabinet. And the success of any leader is the people he or she surrounds themselves with. These powerful positions provide leadership within our government, and you need to ask yourself which presidential candidate would select the most knowledgeable, ethical, and effective staff. With two platforms and ideology so different, it gives you some clear distinctives. So I'm asking you to vote for president according to your vision for America. And those are two opposite ends of the spectrum on their platforms. You read through them, you pray through them, you say, this is the direction I want our country to go, then you vote for that. Or if you look at this one, this direction I want our country to go, then you vote for that. That's what I encourage you to do on November 8th. You say, well, then after I vote, and I know a lot of people have said, go home, take a shower. Uh, (laughs) After I vote, then what do I do? Number two is this. You need to rest assured in the sovereignty of God. You need to rest assured in the sovereignty of God. It was not by accident the songs that Michael chose for us to sing today about our Lord, our mighty God. There are verses in Scripture, and I'm going to place them up here and just write uh, where they are, and then you can go uh, look them up and use them hopefully in some quiet times uh, to give you strength. Psalm 103, 19 says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He is sovereign, he rules over all. Job 12, 10 says this, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. We serve such a powerful God that our breath is in his hand. The reason you and I are even here today and breathing is because of the hand of God. Job 12, 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He's in charge. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He's the one who removes kings and he sets up kings. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You say, really? You really think God does that? Do you really think that God gets so involved that, that he can turn kings? Yeah, and the Bible gives a beautiful story of it. If you looked in Jeremiah, Jeremiah had prophesied that uh, when the Babylonians came in to take over Jerusalem, just stay with me, Babylonians came, they took Jerusalem. When they took Jerusalem, they destroyed the city and he took many of the people and they sent them over to Babylon. And there they were going to be for who knows how long. Jeremiah prophesied and he said, 
Israelites are going to captivity for 70 years. And then after 70 years, God was going to allow them to go back. How is he going to do that? So what's going to change in 70 years that somebody's mind's going to change and they're going to let them come back? Well, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45 talks about a king by the name of Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was getting ready to be the king of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire was what was getting ready to take over the Babylonian Empire. And Isaiah prophesies about a king by the name of Cyrus, who was a pagan king. He says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, his anointed, (laughs) to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and open doors before him. The gates may not be closed. I will go before you and I will level the exalted places. I'll break in pieces the doors of bronze and I will cut through, I will cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the measures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. You don't even know me, Cyrus. You don't even know me as the God of all. But I know you. And I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And what God just said is, you are a pagan king. You don't know who I am, but guess what? I'm getting ready to use you to get my people back into Jerusalem and they're gonna rebuild the temple and you're the one that's gonna let them do it. You don't have any idea who I am. You say, no. Did that happen? Yeah, Ezra. The book of Ezra, Chapter one, this is how it starts out. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, same one Isaiah prophesied about, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now all of a sudden his eyes are open to all of this. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. God took a pagan king of Persia and he used him for his glory. We are to rest assured in the sovereignty of God. I like what Steve Farrar says. Steve Farrar says things are not out of control. Things are under his control. There is a plan on God's timetable. He is not wringing his hands, wondering how America got like this and wondering what to do. God is in control. Well, you're sitting out there saying, well, Danny, so does that mean that we just sit back and don't vote and we'll just leave it up to God? Not at all. If the doctor says he sees something troubling and you need to get an MRI, do you say, well, God's in control, so I won't get that MRI? No. When your child is bullied in school, do you as a parent do nothing and say, well, God's in control? No. So you vote and you trust God. You rest in the sovereignty of God and somehow through all of this, he will display his glory. That's all you can do is rest on his sovereignty. Maybe the next president will be a male or female King Cyrus that God uses to bring our nation back to him. 
Maybe the next president will be a male or female Jeroboam, the king of Israel, who God said, I will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. And there was judgment on the nation because of that king. Listen, your responsibility and my responsibility is to pray and vote according to God's leadership and then rest in his sovereignty. Last of all, our responsibilities on November 9th and beyond. You vote, you go home, you watch it on TV, the results come in, and by that night or maybe the next morning, we have a new president-elect. So what do you do? Everything said by Jesus to his followers and everything written by Paul, I'm going to remind you this again, to the churches were written to people who were under a governmental rule where they had no vote, no voice, but the one thing they did have was persecution. And when the election over and a new president is elected, nothing in God's word changes. No matter if your candidate wins or loses, God's word remains the same and your responsibilities and my responsibilities as a Christ follower remain the same. Paul did not put any footnotes saying if one dictator was removed and another kinder and gentler one rules, then do this or that. No, there was God's word for all seasons, for all situations, for all kings, and for all rulers. Nothing changes in God's word. So on November 9th and beyond, I'm just going to give you a bullet list of five things we need to do. You ready? Number one is this, love the Lord completely. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he came back in Matthew 12, 30, and he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. When this election is over, whether it be Republican or Democrat, it does not change your call to wholeheartedly love and serve the Lord your God. In fact, with a greatly flawed president-elect, it should motivate you to embrace this even more. We are to love our God wholeheartedly. That does not change. And we as believers need to do that, number one. Jesus says, this is the first thing you need to do. Love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We need to do that. Number two is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 12, 31, Jesus then said, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now we need to understand, however this election turns out, we will have a deeply divided country. There will be heightened emotions, there will be angry outbursts, and our nation will be looking for a steady rudder to help navigate us through these times. And we as Christ followers need to be the ones for setting the standard of loving our neighbors. And if you understand when Jesus was explaining, when someone says, who is my neighbor? And he talked about the good Samaritan. It didn't mean just the people that you like and that you agree with. And you could take the the Samaritan stopping to help the Jew. You could sit there and say a Democrat stopped to help a Republican. Or a Republican stopped to help a Democrat or whatever the way we are today. It says that we are to love our neighbors. And somebody has got to be that steady rudder that navigates us through these difficult times and nothing better than Christ's followers who are part of the triangle or people who live by faith and who live virtuous lives and they step out and they love their neighbors as themselves. They love others, they serve others and they are a light bearer in their sphere of influence displaying the love of God. That is what we are called to do. We love our God 
and we love our neighbors. Number three, we pray for the president and other government leaders. First Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2, he says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made of all people for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul, writing to a young pastor, Timothy, says, listen, you got to be praying. You pray for all people. Then he says you pray for kings and all in authority. Do you realize that who was ruling them at that time was Nero? Now, if Paul can tell Timothy to pray for Nero, then you or I could pray for whoever's elected as president of the United States. And we could pray for Democrats and we can pray for for Republicans. And this is what he says. You pray for all those in high positions. You pray for the president. You pray for the vice president. You pray for the cabinet members. You pray for the Supreme Court justices. This is what we are to do. We are to pray. And he says the result of these prayers is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, which means that as we pray that things can sort of settle down. There can be a, 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 um, it's like an environment in which which people get along together. And and then as we begin to get this peaceful, quiet life, then we can live godly and dignified in every way. People can focus on the gospel and the worship of God. And this is what we are to do. We're to pray for those that are our leaders. But then in the same passage, the fourth point is live a godly life. Live a godly life. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for your president and for government leaders and live a godly life. Look what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2, 2 through 4, he says, when we pray for these, why do we do this? He says, you do this that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Live a godly life. Lives of godliness and holiness. Why do we do this? Look what he says. This is good and it's pleasing. And in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God's desire, is that all people would be saved. Every person would come to know Christ as Savior. The people across the street from you, the people in the next state and the people in the next country. All people will come to know Christ as Savior. And he says a part of that is by you living a godly life to where you can pour in to people's lives. You can kind of lean into their lives and, and show them how much you love them. And then they begin to ask you about that and you share about the light of Christ and they, they hear the words of Christ that you share, but then they see it lived out in your life. And all of a sudden you begin to see people wanting to make these decisions and to say, I need to do that. I need to make that same decision in my life to receive Christ as Savior. He says, I want you to do all this because this is God's desires that all people would be saved. And the last one is this, and that is pray for spiritual revival. Pray for spiritual revival. Some people have said, is there anything positive that's come out of this election? Yes. The one positive that has come from this presidential election is a stark reminder that we cannot place our hope in political candidates or governmental systems. The hope for America and the hope for our personal lives is in Jesus Christ and Jesus only. So we need to pray for a spiritual awakening, a spiritual revival. We need God's people to get on fire for God and to be the change agents in our world. We need to be transformed people sent to influence our world for Christ. 
We need to cry out like the psalmist does in Psalm 85, verses 6 through 7, when he says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. May we be a people that want revival, that want awakening to take place. So once November 9th comes, just need to make a solemn promise to not only say I'm going to love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, and I'm going to pray for our president and for our government leaders, and I want to live a life that is a godly life so that I can tell others about who Christ is and see them come to know Christ as Savior. But I also want to make a point that I want to pray for spiritual awakening, spiritual revival to take place in our nation. God, let it start. And just as every prayer throughout throughout history, when people pray for revival, they always say the best prayer to pray is I'm praying for revival and Lord, let it start in me. Let it start in me. And for us who will be concerned about our nation and the direction of our nation, and we want to see things to change and and we'd love to see more of a godly influence and love to see people come to know Christ as Savior. If that spiritual awakening, spiritual revival is going to take place, it's got to start in individual lives. It starts in our life. And that's why we specifically chose this Sunday to have a Lord's Supper. Because when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it is when you sitting there holding the cup that represents the bread, Jesus' body broken, and the blood that was shed. You think about what Christ did for you. And you think about how he died on the cross for your sins to provide that opportunity for you to come into a right relationship with God the Father and to spend eternity with him in heaven when you step out of this world. But as you're sitting there, you're also reminded of the words of Paul where Paul says, examine your hearts before you partake of this. And so... I cannot think of anything better as we move towards this time of election and then after that for us to prepare our hearts and to say, God, if there's anything that's wrong within me, instead of me casting stones at presidential candidates and other people that are running for offices, may I take a few moments and push that aside and just look at my own self and say, God, what is it in me that needs to be changed? What is it in me that I need to come before you and ask for forgiveness what is the area of my life that I have put a keep outdoor to where I've said Jesus don't come in there this is an area I really don't want you to mess with what is that area that I need to open up to him and say Lord I want to totally give myself to you this is the moment where that starts I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment and as you do that I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer And I want us to be thinking about what God is speaking in your heart. Heavenly Father, this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be like a searchlight in our heart. And it would go through and it would illumine the areas that are not pleasing with you. And that as we see that, that we would ask for forgiveness and say, Lord, we want to get a fresh start. We want you to truly be Lord over all of our life. And so, Father, speak to each one of us at this time. And then, Lord, at the same time, may we give a breath of thanksgiving.
for what Jesus has done on the cross for us. That you have given us the opportunity to be adopted into your family. And we're thankful. And so, Lord, I pray for these next moments that you would truly be lifted up and you would speak into our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, at this time, I'm going to ask uh, those who are helping out our, uh, with the Lord's Supper, if you would come and, and uh, if you would get the uh, trays and get in position. Let me just give you a few instructions, uh, for, especially for those that you may be a guest of ours. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And uh, it's one of the two ordinances in Scripture. And in this ordinance, it is the believers are to partake in this. Now, some of you that you, you may be visiting with us today, you say, you know, I know I'm a Christian uh, and uh, I, I'm just here, I'm visiting, I'm, I'm, I'm out of town or maybe I've just moved to town or I've been living here forever and I just came by and visited on this Sunday. Then you, we welcome you to take a part in this. And it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or not. If you're a believer, uh, we want you to be a part and take part in this Lord's Supper. But then there are others that you're just being real honest and said, you know, I'm here, but I've really never made this decision for Christ as you talk about. I would have to say I'm not a, not a Christian. Uh, I try to do good, but, but I, I don't have that relationship with God that you guys are talking about. And I would appreciate that when they pass the plate with the elements, that you just pass that and don't partake of any. And, but yet I want you to think about the message that we have shared. And I want you to take that same challenge of, of praying to a heavenly father who loves you. And the greatest thing that can happen for you today is that you made that decision to ask him to enter into your heart. Because you know you're a sinner. We all know that. We know that's separating us from a holy God. And God has said, I've given my son so that you can come into right relationship with me. And this may be the time when he speaks in into your heart. So um, I'm going to give uh, a quick prayer. And as soon as I do that, we pass the elements. As you get the elements, if you'll hold on to it, and then following special music, I'll give instructions for how we partake in it. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for what Jesus has done for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was when the uh, king of the world stepped out of heaven onto earth lived for 33 years, and then on the night before his arrest, he met with uh, his disciples. And at that last supper, when he was sharing that last meal before his arrest, he took two elements out of the supper and gave them great symbolic meaning. He took the bread that was there, and when he took the bread, he broke it. And he told them, he says, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. scripture says that um, they continued their meal as they were getting near the end of the meal he took the cup and he told them it says this cup represents my blood which will be shed for you blood of a new covenant